From the studios of Fractal Recording, this is The Mystic Show, episode 107. Welcome, everyone, to The Mystic Show. I'm happy you're here. I'm happy you're listening. Well, I guess if you're here, it doesn't mean you're listening, but maybe you are. Uh, This is a show where we talk about spirituality and mindfulness and meditation and uh, also self-help because we, you know, if you've heard uh, the show before, We know that spirituality is great and mindfulness, they're all very good, but if you don't actually implement it in your life, then uh, I don't know, we don't know what kind of value it has. So so we're available as a podcast in iTunes and Stitcher and on our website, themysticshow.net. And obviously this is episode 107, so we've had many past guests and we've had many past episodes for you to listen to and enjoy. Um, and again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Pause Your Life. Pause Your Life is a meetup group uh, here in northern New Jersey, and we also do retreats. That's right. My wife and I organize it, and we have a wonderful group of people who, uh, who meet up monthly. And, uh, and the whole idea is to pause your life. The fact that modern day life is very relentless. I like the word relentless and we never have time to actually pause and just be a human being. So that's what Pause Your Life is all about. Uh, Pauseyourlife.org is the website. And we're actually now we're planning our a winter retreat, probably for January of 2015. So I am actually honored today to have uh, a great friend here in studio, um, a friend that has been to, I think, almost all of our Pause Your Life meetups and has contributed so much. And uh, and my wife and I have even been up to your house doing uh, some... Well, we can actually talk about that, but I want to introduce Eric Marmalejo. He's, uh, he's a civil litigation lawyer now, <laughs> and he grew up in El Paso, Texas as part of the Yaqui tribe and uh, the Zapotec tribe. So, Eric, welcome to The Mystic Show. Chris, thank you. Good evening. Thank you. You're so gracious, and I appreciate your uh, having me on the show tonight. Uh, for me, it's an honor, and uh, many blessings to you, your wife, and to all the listeners. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, we've, well, we've known each other for probably about a year and a half now, and uh, when we get together on these meetup, we, meetups, we always talk about spiritual topics. Exactly. So... I thought it would be great to have you on this show, and I just want to explain real quick to the listeners that you grew up in a Native American culture. That's correct. You are Native American. That's correct. And you, we're going to talk about your life, where you came from, and also some of the spiritual beliefs of, of your tribe. Uh, and I think it's also very interesting that you have grown up, you've been, I mean, you're not a Native American who stayed 
and just lived as a Native American would, let's say, 100 years ago, you've actually entered modern day life. You're a lawyer. I know you've been in other industries, too. So I think it's very interesting how you you have these Native American roots, which are very deep, which we're going to talk about. And now, you know, you're a civil litigation lawyer, but you still have those roots inside of you, don't you? That's correct. You know, they're, they're, they're fundamental in us and lineage, I believe, whether you're Native American or any other culture you come from, I believe the lineage is extremely important in the way we li- live our lives and how it governs our lives. Uh, as, a, as a person with Native background, uh, those sort of lineages and the cultural background that comes along with it has helped me and served me many, many ways. Hopefully I'll disclose some of those during the show with you because some are extremely important in the way I've been able to live my life and lead my life right. and how I view life in general. Right. And I know another thing, maybe we can start here. I'll ask you about this fact that modern day life in 2014 is very superficial. Oh boy, is it superficial. <laughs> you know, being, being, a, being a lawyer and seeing uh, all facets of, of living And as a particular civil litigation lawyer, I often come across situations uh, involving more than anything else, people's financial interests and modern life. You're correct. You know, we've lost sight of what is important in life and what governs and makes us whole people uh, and how to treat other people with respect, particularly Uh, my culture teaches respect. Uh, not only of of our elders, which are extremely important, but of all peoples and all cultures. We respect them, we honor them, and and we find a way to live harmoniously, not only with people, but with nature in general. Mm. Uh, So yes, you know, we live a very superficial modern life, uh, but there's always room for any of us, I believe, to tap into what is the true essence of ourselves. In fact, our lineages, whether you come from Ireland, whether you come from China, whether you come from India, we all have lineages that we can tap on and also learn from others. And that's what I try to do by coming to Pause Your Life, which, once again, I appreciate you you making that venue available for us. Not only do I try to impart my spirituality and some of my ways to others, I'm trying to learn and grow my myself and my ways as well. I think it's extremely important. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, you know, there are people who want to tell you all about, you know, what's important and what's not, but they're not always into listening. But you certainly are. And and that's and and a lot of the people in the Pause Your Life group are most everyone is it's a wonderful group. So take us back to El Paso, Texas, when you were growing up and you were born. Tell us about the dynamic of growing up, your parents, your family. What was what is that like? Sure. Let, Let me just before I get into that, just give you a brief little description of how why there was that dynamic. Uh, most indigenous people of Americas, uh, which we would call natives, you'd call tribal people, in general it's the indigenous people. And what I mean by that is, oh, about 30,000 years ago, that's where my beginnings, I think, come from. <laughs> uh, 30,000 years ago, when the Siberian Peninsula froze over, that's the uh, body of water between Russia and Alaska, there were groups of nomadic people in outer Siberia, which made their way ultimately to the Americas. Uh, those nomadic people, little by little, began to deposit themselves, and some stayed in Canada, others stayed in North America, Central America, and they are today what we know as people such as the Cherokee, the Navajo, uh, the um, uh, Pueblo Indians, Zuni Indians, all these group of individuals who came to this North Americas, including the people down in Peru. Now, how does that translate into the question you asked me about growing up in El Paso, Texas? El Paso, Texas is a 
a southwest town, which is a time when I grew up, fairly small town, together coupled with a metro area of uh, Juarez, Mexico, and Las Cruces, about two and a half million people almost now. But at the time I grew up, it was a relatively small town, primarily farming uh, community. There were a great number of people who migrated from Mexico at that time. And what had happened during the early late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, not only as a result of the Mexican Revolution, which was their equivalent of our Civil War, uh, and, and the need for workers to come to help build the railroad system, families came. My family came over on two parts. On my maternal side of the family, they left to escape uh, the persecution that was going on during the Mexican Revolution. My great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, uh, and my grandmother and my great-aunt uh, came to the United States into El Paso in roughly 1906. My grandfather on my paternal side, uh, he came, my great-grandfather came to the United States uh, to work on the, on the, as I indicated, on the railroads. And he came in the late, teen, late 1800s. So, you know, our families, both sides of my family, have been in the Southwest and in the United States since over 100 years, well over 100 years. When my family, particularly my father, my, my paternal side and my father's mother's side, they were the ones that had indigenous roots behind them. My father's side was a Spaniard side that came from Spain. Mm-hmm. So I, of, the, of the four family members, the four sides of my family, three of us come from an indigenous roots, which are the Yaqui Zapotec. Today, there is a well-recognized group of Yaqui a tribe in Tucson named the Pascua Yaqui, which was a splinter group of the original Yaquis that came from the Sonoran Desert region. Growing up in El Paso, I was very fortunate to have spent several years with a great-grandmother who was probably the first person to impart to me uh, sort of our, our ways. And what I meant by that, what I mean by that is she was a great advocate of using herbs uh, for healing. She was a great advocate of using what we now know as mind-body healing techniques. Um, And she taught us great compassion, compassion for human beings, compassion for nature. Uh, The elder system in in most indigenous roots, and when I talk about it, I'm going to try to generalize it when necessary. Obviously, I can give you specifics as to our background. But the elder system is a very important system. So growing up as a young man, we always had uh, access to people that were considered our elders. And in some tribes, the elders are very, very well-defined in that there's tribal councils. Uh, There are people like that to whom you can go. Uh, Many of the healers, many of the people that were uh, involved as elders taught us certain things in certain ways. Uh, Again, I was very fortunate to have had a great-grandmother, although I didn't spend many years of my life with her. uh, I did begin my spirituality then. And from there, I continued to grow. Right. Um, life in El Paso was uh, one of of beginning to flourish and, and, and grow these ways. It was very difficult back in the days when I was a child because of the tension between the cultures. What I mean by that was there was still, back then, the difficulty in living in the United States and having indigenous background, having come from Mexico, there was a lot of animosity at that time. So it was very difficult transition, and it was very difficult oftentimes for me to, to maintain a spiritual way of looking at life when I understood that there was 
great tension and, 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 and toward those of us who grew up. There's a tribe now that lives in El Paso called the Tigua Indians, which today they see that very much. Uh, there's always battling back and forth and always things going on with uh, other members of the community and the Tigua Indians. Uh, so growing up, we had that tension, but we never lost sight of the fact that there were very deep-rooted cultural aspects to us. And as I began to say earlier, nature plays an extremely important role in all indigenous people. And what I mean by nature is there's always two sides to the coin, Chris. People often don't recognize that we live in a world where it's essential, for example, that we need trees, we need animals. We wouldn't be alive today if we didn't have the oxygen-producing capabilities of a tree, for example. But it's more than that. It's a living thing. It's a living item. Just as animals, just as a cow is living, as a bear is living, you know, plants live, uh, trees live. And we recognize the importance and we treat them with respect just as we would treat a human being with respect. And there's always a, two sides of looking at it. I'm not a hunter, meaning that I don't hunt uh, animals just for trophies or, or just to, to kill an animal. Clearly, almost all tribe, tribal members and all natives at some particular point hunted, but it was for sustenance. And they're very spiritual. Uh, uh, it's a very spiritual thing to actually hunt an animal, uh, have, it, have it offer itself to you as an animal and the spirit of the animal to provide for our living and provide for our life. So growing up in El Paso, this became very one of the prominent things. A lot of the, the natives that resided in, in, in that part of the, of the country, and Yaquis included, the deer is a very sacred animal to, to us. The deer was one of the f- very first animals that we believe provided the nourishment and its spirit to us as, as a people. It's so revered and so praised that we actually have what are called deer dances. And if you look, we're one of the, one of the, the, the tribes that really honor our deer dances. I remember as a young boy, there's an old mission uh, growing up while I was growing up uh, called the Isleta Mission, Y-S-L-E-T-A Mission. And it was one of the oldest missions where the Spaniards brought Christianity to that area. And I remember as a young boy that uh, when they were having Easter Mass uh, during the time when uh, Jesus Christ is known to have uh, resurrected and is a very holy time for Christians, it wasn't unusual to have a procession for that and then walk right outside and we'd be doing a deer dance or be doing a dance. So it was, I remember a time I performed some dancing there at the, at the Mount Carmel Isleto Mission. Mm. And those sort of things, let me back up a sec, Chris, because, you know, this is, some, this is a, a place where we differ as our tribes, Yaquis, Pueblos, uh, Tiguas, many of the other tribes such as Cherokee, Navajo, less so. But during the time when the Spaniards uh, explored, particularly Mexico and parts of North America, they brought Jesuits with them to bring Christianity to that part of the world. It just turned out that many of the indigenous people at the time were, were brought the religion, but they kept their spiritual ways from many, many years back. So there's an interesting mix with a group of us and me being included that we not only do we have our spiritual beliefs, which are very strong, we have a religious beliefs 
oftentimes very steeped and strongly steeped in, in Christianity. I'll take my mom, for example. She's a good example of that. Even though she has very significant spiritual capabilities, uh, and I'll explain what I mean by that later, she's also a, a very religious person in, in that sense. And as a young man, I had to reconcile that. And as an adult, I've completely reconciled that, that uh, spirituality and religion can be reconciled. Uh, in fact, it helped me uh, fairly recently. About seven years ago, I had a, a severe illness, which was, for the most part, a fatal illness. Uh, I overcame the illness through my spirituality and through the, the, the religious belief that I have. And I think, to me, that was a testament that these years of lineage and growing up were, are essential. And how honoring nature and working with nature is extremely important. Mm-hmm. And our, our elder system. You know, there are many ceremonies that we have that are extremely important. Some of them are very specific. For example, there are certain ceremonies when a person is passing. They're called pushing ceremonies. And many natives and many indigenous people have a type of pushing ceremony. And that's where we usher a spirit and we help an individual spiritually move forward into another world. Uh, we recognize that there is this life, and we have a belief that this life is in the end all and be all. That although our organic body may leave us uh, and we shed our organic body, our spiritual life continues. Um, so it's, that was definitely a very deep-rooted uh, belief that we had that we still have. And as a young man growing up, I never thought twice about it. To me, it was always, okay, you know, I know that if my great-grandmother died, I know I'd still be seeing her. I'd be able to speak with her and go to her for, for any kind of assistance that I needed in the spiritual world. Uh, and I still believe that today. Were you taught how to do that? Go to her for... Yes, you know, we, we are. And, and it, it, it can be in stages. And uh, what happens with it is that you oftentimes turn to a particular elder for assistance. And you talk, turn to others in the community. The community is a very important part of the entire system. And it doesn't even have to be in community of the same lineage. For example, where I grew up, it was a small little uh, suburb of the downtown area, primarily an old uh, uh, farmlands that had been uh, converted over to some housing. And there were people of various backgrounds there. And yes, you're taught as you go on through your parents, through the elders, through others, how you can tap into the spirituality, and a lot of it involves, we now you know, recognize it as a meditation type of technique, but it may not have been referred to as a meditation technique. Um, you know, be, we have very similar principles, being that we came from 30,000 years ago from uh, outer Siberia. The Mongolians, particularly, were a large influence in, in our traditions. And if you look at the way Mongolians lived, the way people from outer China, outer China lived, Tibetans, for example, meditation is a key and important part of their lives. And we do that. And today in my life, I meditate daily. I meditate in the morning and I meditate in the evening. And I'm able to meditate. There are various forms of meditation. Meditation for journeying, journeying for um, healing journeys, vision quests, uh, learning quests. There are very many different forms of meditation, and those things often, that type of meditation often takes great uh, skill, and it takes uh, perseverance through the years. And I attribute a lot of my uh, healing to being able to tap into those abilities that, that I acquired as a young man and 
almost came natural to me. Right. Um, this is going to be like a nine-hour interview. I have like 47,000 more questions. <laughs> um, learning meditation when you were growing up, how did that happen? Did, they, did your elders sit you down and teach you? How did it happen? Uh, it, it could be in many forms. Uh, many forms They could have been that elders, and I'm trying to talk in general of how people were taught these things. Oftentimes it was taught through an elder, whether it's a family member that's an elder or through others in your family that you recognize did this form of meditation. Uh, and meditation came in various forms. You know, we have a, I think most of us in the Western world have a vision that meditation means you sit in a lotus position and uh, you, you chant various uh, mantras. Touch, touch your fingers exactly, like this. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And that's really not it. Meditation comes in many forms. Meditation can come from uh, in nothing more than even, for example, since I said there was a tie with Christian world, people... Um, that pray the rosary, for example, use that time as a meditation to tap into them, their inner selves. Uh, it doesn't have to be that that as well either. I used to work on a, on my cousin's uh, ranch for for several years uh, growing up, and I think that was one of the greatest experiences I had because that oftentimes I found myself in the middle of the desert, lo- alone for many nights. You know, we'd I'd sleep there and do the work that I needed to do, and it was just me the dog that I used to have that used to offer my protection, and coyotes, uh, <laughs> believe it or not. And oftentimes, you know, many people don't know this about me. When I, even my own family, there were times that I would sit there and I would have conversations. What I mean conversations with coyotes is I would call, they'd call back. There'd be these sort of responses. And I, I look back to those days with, uh, uh, with great desire to return to that because it was, I understood the animals were communicating with me and I communicating with them. And it was a sense where I began to learn the true essence of what meditation meant. You know, when you're placed in a scenario, when you're a young man and you're in the middle of nowhere uh, with nothing but the stars above you and coyotes uh, howling behind you, uh, you begin to understand what tapping into your inner self does. Excuse me, Chris. Oftentimes, uh, People using herbs, try to use herbs and psychotropics, and you hear this a lot of various tribes, uh, to induce themselves into a, into a particular state. Peruvian Indians use ayahuasca, for example. Uh, people, Yankees and people of, uh, from mine can use something called datura. Uh, Talwachi, it's also called, which is a psychotropic drug. And many people have heard of other natives using peyote, for example. And the reason they do that is they believe that if they can rid themselves of the normal senses, they could then tap into their, their cognitive sense. Now, you ask how we learned meditation. For us, it's extremely important to recognize that we're limited day-to-day by our senses. And we don't have just five senses. We actually have six senses. You have touch, feel, smell, hearing. But you also have time. And people don't recognize that that's a sense. And what I mean by that, Chris, is how many times don't we sit down and say, oh my gosh, I got to be here. I'm running late already. Or the time, I got to be there. Time is a limiting factor. And we recognize that if we can control our senses as well as time, our perception of time, you're well on your way to tamping into your inner self. The cognitive sense or the ability to use your mind is the most important thing that we have. And we're taught various exercises on how to use your mind. And through the years, I've been able to hone those senses even more. And I try to teach those 
that that approach to others. You don't have to be of my lineage. People, anyone who's interested, I will be more than glad to try to teach people those things. It takes uh, perseverance, takes discipline, but often there's a handful of people that have achieved it that have uh, worked with me, and they've learned this ability to tap into their their cognitive sense and actually heal themselves, uh, be able to to journey as we would all call it in in the in the sort of meditative world and that's how little by little you know we grew and we sort of graduated as we went along you know we were taught certain things and in return we were expected to teach others and bring other individuals up uh, in that. Interesting, yeah. just want to remind everyone, you're listening to The Mystic Show, and our guest today is Eric Marmalejo. Uh, well, these days, you're a civil litigation lawyer, yes. but we're talking a lot about your Native American upbringing and your lineage and, and your culture. Um, and, and people can contact you if they want to learn more about it, and we'll have your email address on the show post. So if, if you're listening and you want to contact Eric, you can do that. Just check out the post. Um I want to um, I want to ask you about what you're doing these days, how you're incorporating your culture and and these meditative practices into your everyday life these days. But first, I want to go I want to go all the way there. So let's let's really get into for a few minutes about the beliefs about life and death and spirits and stuff. Because I was raised Catholic, and you're always told, you know, either you're going to go to heaven or hell, exactly, and all that. So, and I know. So tell us about your culture and your upbringing and what about life and death. Yes. Uh, you know, you say a very interesting um, uh, dichotomy that, that exists in, in, uh, in Catholicism and in Christianity in general, uh, this have concept of heaven and hell. Uh, you, you know, first, natives and, and most indigenous people use the elements. We recognize there's two worlds. There's sort of the spiritual. The world we live in, which incorporates the elements and nature around us, but we recognize there's a creator. The creator doesn't necessarily have to be the same creator for all of us, but we recognize that there's a creator. Someone put nature there for us, and we don't have to reconcile. You know, Let me just digress a bit uh, sure. to add to the complexity of my life. Not only have I worked as a lawyer for the last 24 years, but prior to that, I was a scientist. I have my, degree in, my master's degree in physics, and I was working on my Ph.D. I actually worked as an oceanographer. <laughs> nice. So talk about <laughs> having all sorts of complications in my life. As a scientist, I want to look at life one way. As a lawyer, I want to look at life one way. And then I have this very strong lineage that pulls me another way. I've honestly been able to reconcile them all for myself. Mm-hmm. And in, in our culture, we look at life through, the, through nature and the elements. You know, the four important elements that many of the philosophies and, and, and spiritual uh, uh, realms deal with, we have fire, wind, you know, a water and earth. Those are the four elements that generally create what we call our medicine wheel or our spirit wheel. And most indigenous people have something similar to that form. There are various domains above and below that. And what I mean by that is there's a middle region oftentimes, which is the life we live in. Then there's a lower region and an upper region. And they all deal with spirituality. So life and death, the way we look at it, and again, I'm trying to couple it because we have the complication that we do have Christianity involved in there. But for the most part, we do believe that as a person dies, we, like many of the other uh, spiritual beliefs in this world, do believe we have energy centers in our body. 
And the energy centers are, could be equivalent to what people consider chakras, for example. So our energy samples, uh, centers incorporate typically what most people know as a chakra, except we don't have the same root chakra that e- the Eastern uh, spiritual uh, societies look at. Our root chakra is, at least in, in, in my growing up, is nature. So you need to be well-grounded in nature before you can even consider balancing or working on the rest of your chakra. So our root chakra coupled to our ankles creates us and helps us become well-grounded. So once we understand how to live with nature and how to live harmoniously with what's around us, we now are ready to begin to develop our other energy centers and to really balance our energy centers. Those energy centers all come together to some point oftentimes known sometimes as the assemblage point, for example, or the soul, uh, or spirit. So we believe that when a human and a person leaves their organic body, our soul continues. And it's nothing more than taking our energy centers along with it. And once that assemblage point or your soul leaves your body, it becomes untethered and it goes on into the spirit world. That is an ex- extremely important concept because during meditative processes, and I, I tap on that very frequently, I can sit and meditate on a, on, a, on a vision quest. I can be gone for four hours and four or five hours. And by the time I come back from my, my vision quest, I recognize that oh, four or five hours later, here I was doing whatever journey. So when a person dies, we believe their soul continues and will continue. It's not necessarily a form of reincarnation, but it's a form of our soul continuing. Our soul can be embodied in other um, other things of nature. Right. That, Animals and stuff. Exactly. Coupled with that concept, almost all indigenous people believe that at birth, simultaneous with your birth, you are blessed with the spirit of an animal that becomes your protector. It can become your protector, your spirit guide. It's got numerous names for it. Uh, I was, again, it's a story a handful of you have known, and I've told it here. Uh, you know, I don't even think, quite frankly, my family knows about this story either. My, my um, uh, spirit animal came to me fairly young in life, uh, and, and it's a situation where, as it was explained to me, you don't pick the animal you want to be your spirit guide. You know, mo- who wouldn't want to have an eagle or a bear? <laughs> or, you know, it could be a mouse. It could be an ant. It could be, and, but, you know, it comes to you. And you will, at some point in your life, if you're fortunate enough, have that spirit animal reveal itself to you if you truly tap into it. And it's in a situation oftentimes that is clear that it's revealing yourself to you. It's not just because a bear happened to walk across your path. Not necessarily. Mine came to me in a very dramatic fashion, and uh, it became clear to me what my spirit animal was. So along with life and the way we live our life, that spirit animal, particularly in in these latter years of my life and overcoming my illness, became an instrumental point in me. And I looked to my spirit animal for assistance, guidance, and for healing, as well as I would to my religious uh, background for healing. And I feel that... uh, with that approach to life and recognizing that spirit animals became part of our life and our death, it was a way for me to tap in even deeper uh, with what I do. And oftentimes I will do things and I will be invited places, whether they're to uh, uh, drumming sessions or whether they're to uh, uh, other meetings with other people. And I often call upon, and I have various 
totems and allies that I bring with me that represent my spirit animal to, to guide me and protect me during those ceremonies. And what you're talking about is is very subtle. Like it, it's kind of thought and prayer as far as like integrating your spirit animal into your recovery from illness, for instance? That's correct. That's correct. And you oftentimes, uh, through thought and prayer, whether it's in a meditative sense or not, uh, you are often need to feel the presence of that animal and sometimes you will feel the presence of the animal and, and it's an interesting thing for me to say and as a scientist i had very much a difficulty reconciling that because i wanted to be able to be very precise and the way i reconciled it was i said to myself you know science and being a scientist is nothing more than um, interpreting what is there not creating what's there you know, we can interpret what's there, we can use there. Certainly scientists aren't creating a uranium atom, for example. Certainly scientists aren't creating the ocean, but we're describing them usually through mathematical formula or a language that, that is scientific in nature. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that if we can't describe it in nature, it doesn't exist. So I had difficulty initially with these when I was learning and going through school in science because they were taught the science regime. And it took a lot for me to maintain the spirituality and maintain some of these esoteric thoughts like a spirit animal, for example. But time and time again, I was blessed with uh, a reaffirmation that these animals existed. Uh, there have been numerous instances when, and, and by the way, my spirit animal happens to be a cougar, and there have been numerous instances in which I've encountered cougars uh, while hiking. I was very fortunate to live by the Franklin Mountains, and I spent a lot of time in the Franklin Mountains alone, uh, as well as with others. And there were many times I was presented uh, with a cougar, and you know, it's mm. not something that very often happens. You know, I was more likely to be encountered by a bear here than you would with a cougar out there. Yeah, I think you showed me a picture you have of a cougar, right? Uh, absolutely, yes. I had taken a friend of mine, and and uh, she was interested, and she knew that I track animals. And when I mean track, use their tracks to identify them and find them. I don't necessarily kill them, but I go to, to look for them. And uh, she became aware that I know how to track animals, and I, she, I, I've been telling her about my cougar experience as a young man, and she, she asked me, do you think we can find a cougar? And I said, well, we're going to try. So we went out, and sure enough, I was fortunate enough to be blessed by cougar tracks, and it took us about, once we identified her, it took us about two and a half hours, you know, trying to avoid... Uh, being, uh, you know, downwind of her so she wouldn't smell us. And, uh, yeah, so this friend of mine was able to snap a shot. Uh, we were about 50 feet away from her. Beautiful animal and, you know, posed no threat. I didn't feel she posed any threat to either me or, or my friend. Right. Uh, so that was a picture you had seen. Yeah. As far as animals, you know, sometimes the snakes or serpents are, are supposed to be negative or something. Uh, is, is your belief that way? Well, you know, there are various animals. We, we recognize that there are certain animals that have the capability of, to answer the question directly, no. You know, most animals we recognize are not, we do, we do, we do differentiate between good spirit and bad spirit. We recognize that. But most animals, and we believe all animals from our creator, are here to help us. It's the use of those animals. Gotcha. People who wind up having and using a snake for, for bad spirit purposes will make that that snake bad. Okay. A good good example is many people in in many cultures believe that the owl is a uh, represents something demonic uh, or negative, 
In fact, it's quite the opposite. You know, the owl is one of the most intelligent animals and, and hunters at night. If you've ever had the, the luxury of seeing an animal and an owl at night, and I do up in my home, I've had a couple of owls come and actually bring me what I consider to be gifts. They're very tremendous hunters. Uh, and, and they're, you know, hence the name wise owl, for example. They are a very wise animal. There is one animal, interestingly enough, that we've had a lot of experience, my mother included, with. The, the crow or the raven is often deemed as one of those birds, at least in, in our culture, that has the capability of going in and out of the spirit world. And they, I liken it to, if you've ever seen a movie of, uh, let's say, way back in the day when... Uh, uh, they were out in the Middle East and somebody's in a market in a bazaar and there's some young boy running back and forth trying to make friends with one, with one person but trying to sell you out to another. And like, sir, sir, you want to buy this? And then he goes off to somewhere else and tries to sell you out to, to someone else. The crow kind of assumes that position. He can be very deceitful and, and devious, but they are one of the smartest animals and most intelligent animals in terms of perception. Uh, I know we've had numerous dealings back with crows and the way they are. I, I look at them as, as sort of telltales for me. I have a group of crows that, uh, particularly this summer, I used to call them my three boys. They used to come around, and I used them uh, for, for much of my journey and for, for sort of deciding what's good and bad and what's coming around. Mm. You know, my mother had one. She even named it. She named it Giuseppe. Of all things, it was a big black crow, and he used to bring her gifts. Uh, you know, she used to bless it. And uh, recently, one of the crows brought after she blessed the crow. A uh, little while later, she goes back outside, and now it brought the small little crows. It had brought his baby crows to her, <laughs> so I guess they wanted to be blessed also. That's great. But you know, that's one of those animals that, even though it's not, we don't view it as evil. It has a capability of being used by others. Uh, in the spirit world, particularly. Mm. You mentioned that you believe in good and bad souls. Tell us the difference. Yeah, a good spirit and a bad spirit. Uh, we, spirit yeah, yeah we, we, rec- we understand that, you know, just as people are here and we're supposed to show compassion, we're supposed to be good, we're supposed to provide uh, for one another and help in the community. There are obviously those who intend to do ill to you. And some cultures are extremely, extremely believing in, in, in negative spirits and black spirits. You know, you see uh, a whole level of, of specialists that, that become those. For example, we have, we have what's called a curandero back south, which is normally a healer. Sometimes those curanderos are people you go to when you want to do something negative to someone. And we're always taught, do not engage in that because what you do will be worse for you in the end, particularly if you are discovered. And I actually happen to have had a personal experience like that, that unfortunately the person who tried to do do me uh, badly after I found out who the person was, it was worse for that particular person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we do have that. And we have people which are called Nagual, N-A-G-U-A-L, and they're people who go in and out of the, the spirit world. Mm-hmm. And literally during our during our trances and our transformations, these people move in and out of the spirit world. Sometimes they move into the spirit world a good way. Oftentimes they move out of, into the spirit world in a bad way. So that concept of good and evil is probably the closest thing that we would have in a Christian-based uh, society of 
you know, the, uh, heaven and hell, right. uh, the devil and, and, and uh, you know, or Satan and, and, and God of some right. form. Yeah. So it's that sort of concept. But we, we recognize that day-to-day actively some people engage in, in, in negative spirits and bad spirits, and we try to shave those and, and, and get those out of our lives. Right. So I, just before we transition to your modern day life yes. and how you're handling that, I wanted to mention when we were up at your house, we spent the whole day yes. in nature and you did certain ceremonies with us. It was really inspiring and, and uh, delightful and, and, and a great learning experience for me and my wife and a few others. And, and I just wanted to bring up the one part of that day that uh, well, one of the many things that made an impression on me was that everywhere we went in nature and we did something, you had all these seeds. And before we left a certain area, you would say, you told us, here's some seeds we have to give back to nature. That's correct. And we would and we would put some seeds around. Um, well, again, we started the show that, you know, the world today is such a superficial place. But the idea of giving something to a place even... Yes. Uh, Tell us about that. Yes, you know, for us, since nature plays such an integral role, and we recognize that it's one side of the coin and we're the other side of the coin, we try to achieve a balance and we try to honor nature. What I had you doing, by the way, you know, I was very honored to have you up to my place and and those individuals who have come up to my place, I'm very honored that they'd like to learn. You know, I showed you just a small little amount of of what could, uh, some of our practices and how to use those practices. Uh, But the concept is that when you go and you're using nature to heal, whether you're using nature spiritually, whether you're using nature just to enjoy her, we need to give back to her. She gives us constantly. Uh, Mother Nature's purifying us. Mother Nature's giving us oxygen. So that when we were particularly doing the various exercises and the concept was to try to tap in on nature and try to... sense nature. Those sessions, I call them nature awareness. It's just many people don't don't understand the concept and have never been exposed to trying to sense nature without your, your senses, your normal senses, and it becomes a whole different world. So I understand and we understand that nature is giving us whatever you took away from it. We must return to nature, always return something to her. Not, not only out of gratitude, out of respect, but we provide back for her. And what I usually have people do is bring seeds or something that we can spread that either the other animals can eat or if the type of seeds that will grow something there, it will grow and it will become a part of you. You not only are taking from her, you're giving back to her something that she can rejuvenate herself. And I have a very special tree, which uh, you you guys uh, were able to experience. Uh, it's one of the, the, the trees in the area, she's... You, seems to be the only one that is crooked and she has such a beauty to her because she's not straight like all the rest of the pines. And for years I've taken people up there and I've gone up there myself for years. I started hiking up in those areas since the mid eighties and I've been going up there and she's, I saw her as a small little tree and grow up into this wonderful, magnificent tree, which uh, I often take my, my troubles and problems to her. And I take people up there so that they can leave whatever they want to leave there with her. She can take care of herself. She's been doing this for years. She knows how to take care of herself, but I only ask that people give back. And that was the concept, that you go back and Mother Nature's healing you in whatever way you feel she's healing you, whether it's spiritually, whether it's physically, whether it 
uh, uh, knowledge, whatever it is, but we need to give back to her in some particular way. So just being in nature then, nature's always kind of cleaning you? Exactly. You know, it's, it's interesting because one of, the, one of the moments that I think most people don't recognize is one of the most uh, special moments when Mother Nature rains on you. The first thing we see people do is run. <laughs> you know, they want to run and get out of the rain and, oh my gosh, let me get covered. Or you're, if they're in the beach, they're running. Right. You know, the most beautiful thing Mother Nature can do is rain because she cleanses herself. And it's the most beautiful way to cleanse yourself. You know, if you ever have the, the ability, and, and I ask that of, the, of all, any of the listeners out there, particularly in the summer, on a nice rainy day, just stand there. Just stand there, sit there, whatever, and let her drench you and cleanse you. And you will, once you begin to, to understand in the simplicity of what's happening and what she's doing, She's bathing us. Mm-hmm. And you walk away from that with a whole new invigorated feeling. And it's just like many times. I've had so many people come up and no one's ever had to sit by a tree on the ground and meditate. Many people say, wow, I felt something interesting, you know, without disclosing too much because I like, I like to keep people's uh, – interactions with me private i think it's extremely important if you come to me and i spend some time with you and whatever you disclose or devote to me is i take with great sanctity and i don't it's almost like being a lawyer i don't disclose what others but one of the things i know that you had interestingly mentioned that time you were out there when we were by the river uh, up against the tree and i indicated to you all if something comes to you you know if you want to share it to us with this particular animal, uh, make it important. I remember you saying you, you, you sensed that there was a eagle that had uh, had come next to you, and you actually felt the eagle, or you perceived the eagle to be next to you and next to your next to your chest. And I thought that was that was extremely important for me because those uh, those sort of things are very important for others who can begin to sense that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. He the eagle kind of. I was sitting, and the ego kind of landed on my in my lap, sort of, and then kind of leaned into me, like, yeah, not like giving a hug, but just kind of like lean in for a second, and then he, you know, you you may be one of those fortunate ones that has a an eagle as a spirit uh, animal, you know. And when I say fortunate, you know, there are certain animals that have such a capability. They're great hunters. They're great travelers. Uh, they're extremely smart animals, and the eagle happens to be one of those. You know, bears, for example, are extremely well-known for being power animals, you know, than if you're blessed with one of those. But you know what? Don't despair. We have a woman that uh, that comes to our paws. Uh, I won't disclose her name. She knows who she is. Uh, her, her spirit animal seems to be a dove, believe it or not, and she gets great pleasure out of this dove, and it's already the third summer that a pair of doves have come this last summer, uh, the doves came and actually had small doves in her in her flower pot, and uh, you know she's now come to look forward to her doves coming to her annually. That's great. So let let's get into this. Uh, so your everyday life now is as a lawyer um, in New Jersey, in er, kind of the urban part of New exactly. Jersey, um, and you're busy. You're busy a lot with that, right? Yeah. So now, how do you day to day, moment to moment? when you're doing business, when you're maybe negotiating something or even quote unquote arguing something, tell us how you integrate sure. everything in your life in, in those moments. Sure. Well, ju- just to sort of explain, you know, my job as a civil litigation lawyer is probably one of the most stressful jobs of being a lawyer. 
you know, there are various types of lawyers, and a civil litigation lawyer is one who is involved in, in court. Uh, you know, the, the, when you turn on the TV and you see a law program, usually you see people fighting in court, and that's it. You know, that's basically the essence. I don't do criminal work, but I do civil litigation. So it can be anything from business breakups to complex litigation to people suing professionals to family court, anything involving civil litigation, I'm there. And by nature, it's a very... Uh, a uh, competitive, very difficult job because you're dealing with conflict day in and day out. And oftentimes I find many of my colleagues that are lawyers lose sight of the fact that we're human beings first. And it's all about the winner, uh, take, winner take all approach. And I think it's the wrong approach. You know, we've got a job for our clients. I look at, I start my day uh, in a modern day. I often say, you know, I live in a modern world with ancient ways. Uh, that, uh, in fact, I'm writing a book particularly on that particular matter. Uh, the modern way is obviously I have to be a lawyer. I have to function day to day. I have to earn money and have to, I have to coexist with others who may or may not share any spiritual beliefs. Uh, but I start my day uh, pretty much with uh, light meditation. I also start, believe it or not, I learned Tai Chi, which has nothing to do with my, my native background, but I learned Tai Chi back in the 80s. And I do a little bit of Tai Chi every morning, but I incorporate my meditation in my Tai Chi. And I've incorporated a visual Tai Chi. What I mean by that, I use my rattle. I keep my eyes closed or I, or I actually um, uh, blindfold myself as well. And I use my rattles uh, and I, I attempt to visualize the energy that is coming back and forth from the rattles. So that, that exercise by itself, along with the act, I call that active meditation, provides me the ability to start my day, uh, which I call tuned up, if you will, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's the way to do it. And relieve myself and start the day with good intentions. I then uh, go to work, and, and depending on what happens during the day, meditation is always there. And meditation can come in many, 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 many forms. You know, I recently uh, tried to show my business partner uh, his first session in meditation, and I told him, listen, it's, unfortunately, if you go somewhere, they don't teach you the basics. And there's breathing techniques to go along with it. You know, there's ways of looking at it. There's sounds. There's all sorts of things. So may, a lot of these breathing techniques I integrate on a day-to-day basis. When I feel overcome, overwhelmed, when I feel that I'm reaching a point, that a breaking point, or when I reach the point, like I said, that it's a winner-take-all, I don't believe in that. Listen, I will serve my clients. I will advocate for my clients zealously, but I also incorporate spirituality. As I mentioned to you earlier, when I do family court work, which means divorces, custody matters, those are all the most difficult because I recognize that that litigation has very personal consequences to people. Not that the monetary part isn't... isn't, uh, uh, personal to people, but you know, when you're talking about lives of children, you're talking about a spouse who may have difficulty living after a divorce or who was battered, uh, those are very personal items. And I find that as a lawyer, I bring my spirituality and my compassion to these clients, and oftentimes I find uh, it helps people in the transition. And I feel good because it almost makes me heal. Uh, every time I know that someone's taken just a little bit away from something that I could teach them or that I've learned from them, because I'm not going to be presumptuous to say that I'm always teaching. Absolutely not. I learn from everyone, and I try to learn something from everyone. But that being able to provide and help the client overcome a very personal distressed time brings great healing to me. 
So I incorporate my spirituality sometimes without the client even knowing. Right. I'll use various things and various techniques that they may not know is happening at the moment. And oftentimes I'll, they'll tell me, you know, I'm glad I came to see you. I feel so much better now. And they're not recognizing <laughs> what I just did, right, you know. Right. And that's okay. Right. You know, I, as long as they walk away feeling better. I usually end my day at the end of the day. And spirituality is always with me. And I moved full time up into northeast Pennsylvania to be with nature. Uh, I sold the place I had in Morris County to move up there and, and live in what was at one point my summer home. And I wanted to live there. And I'm surrounded by lakes. I'm surrounded by waterfalls, by trees, by every conceivable animal you can think of that's up there. And I live very comfortably. So when I, I go home at night, I take time to spend time, no matter how hot or how cold it is, once I get home, just stand outside. Oftentimes, if I'm still dressed in a suit or not, it doesn't matter. I walk around my property, you know, touching my trees, inspecting my property, saying hello, welcome, thank you for having me back, thank you for taking care of me, so that I am back. I thank my nature. Then I can go inside, and if it's summertime, I usually spend outside. There's oftentimes I'll sleep on my hammock outside just to be close to nature. Uh, but I usually end my day with meditation, and it can be a deep meditation, or it can be just a meditation to give thanks for the day that I had and another day uh, of being on this earth, even though if my body was to leave me today and I had to leave, I would be per perfectly content today. Mm -hmm. I feel that uh, spiritually I'm ready to, if I had to, move on. It would be time to move on, and I've, I've been blessed with my lineage, with the, the people I've grown up with and and the and people like yourself who I've been able to meet and share very wonderful things with. Yeah, sharing some time on the path. So I'm going to thank you now, and then I have the final question for you, sure. Eric. Eric. Our guest today is Eric Marmalejo, uh, currently a civil litigation lawyer, but grew up in the Yaqui Zapotec tribes, uh, Native American tribes in El Paso, Texas. And we're going to have your email address on the show post yes. if people want to talk to you about learning some of the things that you can help them learn. Um Seriously, thanks for coming on the show. Chris, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for me. It's an honor to be here. And anytime I get to talk just a little bit about some of our ways, I, I'm more than glad to. And I always, obviously want to hear from some of the listeners. You know, I'd love to hear some of the ways uh, you live uh, as listeners live out there. And maybe you can share something with me. Yeah, that's great. So the last question is, what would you say to a person who's living in the modern day world and they might be struggling a little or suffering a little. How can you can can you give them any little maybe little advice or tip or a little inspiration on moving forward into their into their future? Yes, yes. I think as I mentioned before, and this is something I truly, truly believe in, has helped me for years to get past this. Look, think of your lineage. We all have a lineage. We all come from some kind of a lineage. And I would venture to say there is no lineage that has not gone through some kind of heartache and, and difficult times. And just think about how your ancestors and forefathers, how difficult it was for them to go from one location to another, whether they immigrated to, like say, for example, they came from another country and immigrated to another country, whether they were persecuted. Uh, all of us have a lineage with some difficulty involved and in difficulty in, in living. Think about that. And just think about how lucky we are today that we live in a world where, for the most part, things are accessible to us. Food is accessible to us. Health care is accessible to us. We don't have to live like our ancestors did. 
tap into the spirituality of your ancestry. It's extremely important, and I, you will begin to discover it, the deeper you dig into your into your heritage and into your background, you will find you have all the tools. I tell a good friend of mine, you have all the tools already. It's just a matter of you building what you want, and I firmly believe that with all of us. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure. Yeah. So thank you for listening. Uh, this has been amazing. I can't wait to just go back and listen to this episode myself. Um, I hope you got a lot from this. I hope this was inspiring. And and as you move through your day or your evening, maybe you can ponder some of these subjects. And, and, and uh, like Eric just said, maybe uh, connect with something inside yourself and just go deeper into yourself. So thank you for listening. And as always, keep shining. <laughs>